This spring, our adult education class at the Cathedral of St. James has embarked on a seven-week series titled From Division to Dialogue, Working Towards Life Together. In this series, we've had the opportunity to discuss what divisions we see in our communities, from faith to politics to race, and the barriers to life together that have resulted. During this series, we've been asking the questions, what's at the root of these divisions? Given our divisions, how do we even approach dialogue? Are there any current examples of dialogue that can serve as a model for addressing these divisions? And finally, what is the end or purpose of dialogue? On May 2nd, Andrea Crawford, Jasmine Brown, and Andrea Rogers led us in a conversation on division and dialogue on race in the U.S. Andrea, Jasmine, and Andrea are co-facilitators of the group Dig In, a local grassroots project that organizes communal meals to build relationships, promote truth-telling, and take action to foster multiracial democracy. Thanks for listening. And I'll start, since most of you know me uh, as a member of the congregation. Um, so one of the things, if, if not the fundamental thing that we like to do and dig in is eat together. Um, and when we can't do that um, together physically, we at least like to model the practices um, of having a meal. Put your bullet screen up. This is the point at which uh, any good hostess or host would make sure we're all comfortable that we have water or coffee. So I hope you all have you know, something um, to, to nourish you in some sense physically. Um, and um, then we would mark the beginning of this meal uh, in a ritual way. Begin is community-based, so we're secular, but since we're here with you uh, at St. James today, um, I'd like to say, I'd like to lead us in a brief prayer. So, um, Dear God of heaven and earth, you created the one, the one human family and endowed each person with great dignity. Aid us, we pray, in overcoming the sin of racism. Grant us your grace in eliminating this blight from our hearts, our communities, our social and civil institutions. Feel, fill our hearts with love for you and our neighbor so that we may work together in healing our land. Amen. So um, thank you, Stephen, for inviting me to do this. I would not, um, I would not be able to show up if I didn't have my two um, fellow lead organizers with me. So I'm really grateful to Jasmine Brown and to Andrea Rogers for coming um, to help lead us, uh, guide us all at St. James in this conversation. Um, we started, the three of us, we met through our neighborhood organizations. And this initiative started in our neighborhood organizations in the sense that it's hard to, um, to do anything to help ourselves locally, um, to even organize with neighbors um, without addressing racism. And so we sought some professional guidance. We hired some trainers. Um, we had some diversity and inclusion workshops um, and digging groups out of that because we realized we can't just leave this work to the professional trainers. Like it's something all of us have to do ourselves in our personal lives. And it's um, incumbent upon us to do it in community with others. Um, and so today we're going to give you a little taste of what we do um, when we gather with our neighbors and dig in. 
um, and, and give you a little bit of a sense of what we've learned in this process of, of sitting down and talking about race um, as we break bread for um, a few years now, we've been doing it. So for the first step, um, this would be a good time to show that slide, Stephen, sort of set you up on what we're doing. Um, so go to the agenda, maybe two down. So the first step will be, I'm going to hand this over to Andrea Rogers and she will lead us in our first activity. All right, thank you. So in just a few minutes, we're gonna pair everybody up into groups of two in breakout rooms for an active listening exercise. And the objective is for each person to really hear what someone else is saying when they share a personal experience and to practice opening up the conversation about race. So how it'll work is the first person will have up to three minutes to share their answer to this question. Describe the first time you recognized race. And the other person will practice active listening without comments or any other questions. Then when the first person is done, the second person will answer the same question while the first person actively listens. You'll see a little timing reminder pop up about halfway through. It'll come up on the screen so that you don't run out of time if the first person has a lot to say. We've learned that often there is a lot to say. Um, you'll be in small groups for only about eight or nine minutes, and then we'll bring you back to large group. So when you're both done, if there's still time when you're in small group, please just sit quietly and reflect on what you've heard. When we all come back to full group, we'll ask for volunteers to share what they learned from their discussion partners. This isn't your answer to that question, but it's what you heard by actively listening to the other person. Great. So I'm wondering if anybody wants to share um, what it was like, what you heard from your, your dialogue partner. Does anybody want to just jump in and and tell us what they heard? I'll, I'll, please, please. I'll start. My partner was Rhonda, and I discovered that geography made a huge difference in when we actually encountered. She grew up in Minnesota. I grew up in West Texas, and um, her parents grew up in Idaho. And um, her experience with, with noting race was late in childhood because she had never seen them. Uh, people of color did not live where she lived. And I guess it wasn't the discussion either. Um, her mother and dad made it an easy transition, but, but Rhonda said in late childhood, and based on what she said, I would say it was geography that had a lot to do with that. Thank you. Anybody else want to share what they heard from their partner? Don't be shy, jump in. You, please, Stephen. Um, my partner um, grew up uh, in Indiana and um, when she was 12, um, which she said was maybe in the 50s or 60s, um, she was uh, at a restaurant in Indiana and uh, her and her dad went and were about to order food and they noticed that there was a black couple um, next to them and the waiter wasn't going to their table. 
and they were uh, they kept coming to them and they were like, well, what do you want to order? And uh, my, my partner's dad said, well, aren't you gonna serve them? Um, they've been here longer than we have. And the waiter said, well, we don't serve people like them. And uh, she noticed in a very real way, the difference um, between her and, and that, that family. And um, she said, her dad said, well, we're leaving then. <laughs> um, so that was a story of here in Indiana, not too, not too long ago. Wow, thank I could, you. I could please about Michael. Uh, he was my partner. Is that all right? I'm, I'm, it says Ann Miller, but I'm Margaret. Please go right ahead. Okay, now, uh, Michael grew up in North Carolina, Henderson, North Carolina, which a town I, I'm aware of. Uh, and he said he can't remember not being aware of race. He was, um, his parents were school teachers. His dad was a football coach. And so, and kids, there were, there were, there was diversity in, in his school. So he can always remember being aware of race. And he, he became aware of some kind of uh, coordination of, of race and poverty in, in that, because the kids, for example, who didn't show up after, whose parents didn't show up to bring them home after football practice, his dad would drive them home. And he was aware when he went with them of, of the places that they lived. So he began really um, in a very mixed group. And, and I take it from his, from what he talked about his parents in a, in a very, in a pretty open, open group. Nevertheless, there was a, a real difference between him and the other races, particularly black. Thank you. Okay. Does anyone want to share what it felt like for you to jump into a conversation about race? Just both feet <laughs> headlong into it right now. How, what was that experience like? I feel like it's preoccupied our culture for these last months and years and then that many of the conversations and I work in academia so so I think that may you know impact things a bit too but just that that virtually every work conversation I have has touched on diversity and and how we you know, change our curriculum and, and all these things that, and it's just been something that's so much at the forefront of the conversations we've been having recently. Anyone else have thoughts? Is it different when you have a conversation about race with someone of your same race than a different one? Or anything you heard from your dialogue partner just now? I am. Um... We've been having these conversations at the cathedral for a while now, and it has gotten easier to discuss, um, but I still feel a little hesitancy in that I don't want to offend anyone, and yet I feel 
I want to know how they feel. And, and when this all started, it was like, you should know how I feel. But if I've grown up in a completely different situation than you have, I may need help with that. I may need you to explain it to me a little bit more because I don't know where you're coming from. That isn't where I grew up. Um, and yes, I can see that things are wrong, but I still like to have your input and your ideas on how we all can make this better. And as a your, I don't, I don't mean necessarily just people of color, but everyone, everyone needs to be in the conversation. I had a boss in, when I was working for the schools who was black and uh, I would just like to point her out as, as remarkably remarkably, I don't know what to say, uh, authentic about how she treated in about, about, about race. She, as I was telling Michael, she would often point out something that happened when we were together. Several of us went out to lunch together. And if there was some kind of odd little thing that I didn't notice, she would often point it out without making a big deal of it. She just would remark. One, one I can tell you was when we all uh, got out for lunch and paid individually at the counter for our lunch, the, the person there put our change in our hands except for her. They, they put the change on the counter for her to pick up. And she pointed that out to us and then didn't go on about it. She was just very good at, at sensitizing me, I guess, without making a, a huge deal of it. And I think I learned so much from her as a, as a result um, that she was, she was good to talk about race with because she could do it in a, in a non-confrontational way. Thank you. Before we move to the next section, any last little thing to share? Any thought anyone has we haven't heard from yet? I can jump in and say, I've had a million conversations about race in the past year, but I've had very few conversations about people's experiences and feelings with race. So having that as the frame made a huge difference. And I think at the same time, you know, just because of current events, you're, you're so likely to have these kinds of conversations come up around the dinner table or, you know, at a holiday. And generally nobody, you know, wants that kind of conflict in that setting, especially if you're visiting people you haven't seen in a while. So to have a space where the time was specifically for the purpose of talking about race, and we know that that's our shared purpose and to just listen, um, it makes a huge difference. So thank you all. Thank you all for being so candid, you know, after having what could be kind of a heavy duty conversation in, in rapid order there. But you all just got a little tiny bite of what Dig In is about. It's about conversation, people knowing each other, and then moving on to action. 
So now Jasmine Brown is going to tell you about Dig In, a little bit about our history. And um, so there it is. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for having me at the table this morning um, to join your congregation uh, in this conversation. It's enlightening. I was love hearing, I loved hearing the feedback from the groups. Michael, you have hit it spot on. That is the intent and the purpose is to share experience, right? Um, is through communication and dialogue uh, that allows those spaces to happen understanding to have a, a space at the table. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Dig In, where we came from, how did we arrive here, um, and what's our goal and intent of, of Dig In for our community. So we started Dig In from a response to community conversations. We held a forum of community members at the Civil Rights Heritage Center um, to have a conversation explicitly about race. We realized that the discussion needed to continue. We needed the vulnerability, the truth, the solutions, and we needed them to be at the table. So we created a table, a, a, created a literal table, a space where neighbors can come together, break bread and have truth-filled, explicit conversations about race. So our first eight-part series took place at Project Impact. We gathered two um, neighborhood associations, Kennedy Park Neighborhood Association and the Near West Side Neighborhood Association. These neighbors had created a relationship together through community action, such as neighborhood cleanups. We did a survey together. Um, and so we, we already built some type of relationship together. So we thought maybe we can come together and continue this conversation on race. And so we really wanted to figure out how did America come to the space where race defined us? I think it was Rhonda that mentioned it a, a moment ago that said, every conversation we have is about race, bingo because every facet of our lives is rooted in race. We are Americans and our system, our institutions were built upon race, right? And so we needed to see how this, from an overall goal, went into South Bend. And so the goal to see, it was to see where racial dissension began in South Bend. To solve a problem, you have to discover the root in, in order to carve it out, right? The goal was to bring neighbors together to have tough conversations. And we felt that when people break bread, they make sure others are fed, they show care. They give a piece of themselves, they share. They exchange experiences, which is the dialogue, and they build empathy, which dismantles dissension. We knew that food played a crucial role in culture, um, specifically sitting at the table. It created, built, and shared a culture within itself. So our first part of the series, we or we had a first eight part series rather, we discovered the horror, went back into the historical content of race in America from the 1619 Project, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with because you did a breakout session with that or a group with that, right? Um, we discussed reconstruction, the eight years that Blacks actually held on to power and the response to reconstruction, Southern Jim Crow and the Northern Blind Eye. We specifically traced content, national content and dissected how that graph was laid upon the city of South Bend with separation in our neighborhoods, neighborhood issues and inequities, um, that we can see different qualities of life, different educational systems, all within the same city. We can look at one side of neighborhoods as opposed to another side of neighborhoods, east side of the river as opposed to the west side of the river, and really tell the tale of dissension inside South Bend. And least, uh, last but not least, but definitely the racial tension that has happened over some issues within community um, that, have, that have occurred, that have really broke down and created a racial tension. 
We even came together about a project on behalf of the city of South Bend and South Bend Heritage Center that wanted to put a rehabilitation center right in our community. And we said, wait, you want to put a rehabilitation center here, but you really don't have the plans grafted out. And what about all the other issues that have come before that that you have not even addressed? And why is it the first time that you want to come into our neighborhood and engage with us being a, a social project, right? That we have to um, we have to set aside other issues and not really solve the problem, but put a band-aid. We want solutions as community neighbors. And so we forced them to go back to the table and start again. We culminated this series with a holding a community discussion on August Wilson's play, Gem of the Ocean with the South Bend Civic Theater. And so here we are at the last eight part series that we just went into a couple of months ago called the third reconstruction. Michael, if you could put, uh, I'm sorry, um, Stephen, if you could put up slide seven. I'm used to Michael being part of our day in group. Sorry, Michael. Yes. And so we talked about the third reconstruction and we wanted to highlight this to you. In time, we've had an original reconstruction, right? Which was the response to civil war. And the civil war came about implicit because of slavery. The South wanted to hold on to their slavery and their economy, whereas the North was saying, no, this is morally object objectionable. And reconstruction happened after the Civil War ended, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, uh, giving equity to society. But then there was a response to that in the South. It was called Jim Crow. And we watched as the nation came together in the 40s and 50s and 60s to the civil rights movement, right? So we considered that the second reconstruction, again, building that progress within society. And then we came to a space where Barack Obama became president and we were like, whoa, look at us as Americans. But then four short year, or I'm sorry, one year after he was elected president, we started to do a backtrack as Americans and Donald Trump's presidency really unfolded some of the fire that was burning inside of America um, that we thought we had put out. But here it is, it rears its head again. And we find ourselves in the space now of what do we do? And we looked at this, do we miss an opportunity of a third reconstruction where yet we can put progress in a real way in a concrete way in society? Or do we not even pay attention to it as society and allow some of our old feelings and old ways to reverberate again in society? So we wanted to reset the table. We were limited due to COVID, but we didn't let that deter us. We modeled this after Reverend Dr. William Barber's book called The Third Reconstruction. And our ideas were to go help somebody, to share our experience and stories about race. And we found that was so imperative to build a list of hopes and helps for our neighborhood and community. Standing together, building coalitions amongst each other. Sankofa, looking back to move forward. What did our past leaders teach us and what groundwork did they lay for us in order for us to build a connected future? We focused our work on building up and becoming catalysts of change, using our power and privilege to assert change through institutions that create inequitable systems. Now we transition. So I want to talk to you all about, um, and Stephen, if you'll take down the uh, slide. Uh, to go back into the main session so I can see faces. There we go, perfect, thank you. So I wanna go with you all. There were some actions that you all took. There was a crawfish boil. There was a deep dive into the 1619 project. There was anti-racism reading group that you had and have held for a long time. The activity this morning, you have engaged in exactly what it is that you want to do. And Stephen left an important question on the table. We're moving from dissension to dialogue. 
what is the next steps of this congregation to move forward to say, okay, we are in our next pathway, we are in our next steps of progress, and bringing this dialogue to a further step, maybe even to action. So I'd like to hear from the group to say, okay, congratulate ourselves of where we've been, but let's support ourselves in moving forward. And what could that next step possibly be for you all? So I'd like to do a brainstorming session. So anybody have any ideas of where you would like to go next as far as um, conversations in race or community action? And I know it's a heavy question. And I know it's something to think about for a second. Michael. Thanks, Jasmine. Um, in our earlier group, I think one way to answer that great question, um, I was paired with uh, Nathan and we were talking about our first memories. We talked about elementary school, meeting our first person of color as white people. But then we started um, to hear about our experiences in education. And um, I'll speak just for myself, um, as somebody with a PhD and who's a product of both public and private education at all levels and who now works at a religious institution, um, I've never had uh, a black person be a teacher or a professor. And uh, Nathan and I talked about the ways in which um, uh, there are few and far role models between, but that institutional racism that's allowed that to happen um, is something that needs to be reversed. So when you ask the question, what happens next as somebody who works in an educational institution, I certainly feel called to call out um, the implicit and explicit bias and racism that is clearly around us um, in our in our workplaces every day. That's a that's a tall tall order for sure. Um, but to Michael's earlier point, I think the the sharing of the stories, as painful as those might be, or as illuminating and educative as they might be, um, that's those story that storytelling has to continue to be able to then have the courage to actually act in the moment. To, to be a part of the reconstruction. Awesome. So I'm hearing you also say that maybe sitting at the table with some people of color to share their experiences and to educate each other in that way, but also to begin to um, press inside the educational system to make sure that people of color are properly represented, right? Awesome, beautiful. Yes, it's one of the things that's great about Dig In. There's my Dig In plug as a member as well. So I'll just throw it out there. James. Um, I uh, wonder if, uh, well, for my in my own experience, I found one of the things that has been very moving to me and helpful to me has been to attend um, African-American churches, black, the black church. <clears throat> and um, I've always been, whenever I've done so, I've always been received uh, with enormous welcome. And um, I wonder if it would be helpful 
for St. James, which is a predominantly white congregation, although there are a few people of color who are members of the congregation and important ones, um, to have uh, develop a partnership with a or several black congregations and and learn from them. That's awesome. I think that's an amazing way to engage yourself in community. Um, it is another, again, space for you to bring that dialogue, to share their experiences, um, and to maybe come together and build solutions for community as well. Excellent. And also that would give us the opportunity to be socially involved with one another, which would, I think would bring in a comfort level, uh, but to work on each other's projects, uh, and walk hand in hand as Jesus would have us do. Mm. Mm. So powerful. Anybody else with any ideas? And it doesn't necessarily have to be as a congregation. It could be your walk in everyday life, right? What can you do? What power do you hold? What groups are you members of that can say, hey, we can build a connection or build a coalition or look at some of the intrinsic things that are wrong, the inequities in our systems to say, yes, I would like to be a part of that change. It's like as Michael was talking about, maybe that's uh, for him for education is big. Maybe it's going to school board meetings. Right. Um, maybe it's talking to um, his district leader as far as school board members go to say, OK, how do we look at the hiring practices to make sure that more people of color are sitting at the table? Right. Is there a way that you can engage your civic leaders? Uh, our our uh, our book study group that you mentioned. Um, one of the clergy that's a part of that um, was part of the Faith in Indiana um, action to uh, for the use of force policy in South Bend and changing that and uh, told our book study group, everyone write your local representatives to get this uh, changed. Um, and so that was a, a political uh, action opportunity for our group. Um, and last week we met with the South Bend Reparations Working Group and um, learned about what kind of action we could take um, on both the federal and the local level um, to help repair injustices from our past. So yeah, like you mentioned, there's always something um, that we can do to make our communities better and stronger and more just and um, those are just a few opportunities, but I think for us, it's really about listening and being open and knowing um, what sort of opportunities for reparations or justice um, are in our community and advocating for those. Mm, absolutely. Is that something you can be incorporating into the church newsletter? or you know, making sure that those things are highlighted and out there so people may take advantage and take part in those activities that are happening, right? Um, maybe huge. Maybe it's even starting a group chat where, hey, I saw this happening in South Bend. I know it's last minute, but we'd really like all of our members to attend and join. 
right? Something like that can even be. And I don't want you to undermine. I mean, it doesn't race is a huge issue, right? But every little step in progress counts. So don't think that your gesture may be too small, right? Think that every step that I make towards progress and bringing community together is a step in the right direction, right? So I want you to support yourselves. You're already doing great work as it is, right? Um, I encourage you to see individual work, but then as a, a group together, continue um, into community to start uh, building uh, those bridges across those gaps. Anybody else would like to share any ideas of how you can, again, go from, where do you go from here? How do you take the dialogue into activity? Let me ask, is there a way that you can incorporate the activity we did this morning into your everyday life? with a friend or right or with and to make those conversations a little bit easier to peel back some of the layers a little bit you see a little a couple little head noddings and I know it's heavy work right I know y'all are like man it's 9 a.m in the morning I'm trying here Jess and I totally get it and it's a heavy lift at 9 a.m right it's a heavy lift at 10 p.m it's a heavy lift uh, but it's definitely something that I want to leave you to be thinking about, um, to leave on your mind as you go through your day, uh, as you wake up tomorrow, to see what steps you can make forward as community or even as your individual self uh, to start, again, building those bridges and having those dialogues and conversation. So I'm going to pass it over to uh, Andrea Crawford and Andrea Rogers to give you some takeaways from Dig In. And Stephen, if you could put up slide number nine, it would be awesome. Thank you. So um, we wanted to share a few things that we've learned doing this in, uh, among neighbors um, that we have found useful um, that, that all of us can then use in any, in any place, uh, in our workplace, among our own neighbors, uh, among our literal and figurative neighbors, um, and within our church here at St. James too. Um, and there are just a couple of sort of truths that we either have focused on or we've sort of uh, developed uh, along the way. And so the first is multiracial leadership. Um, we often, we white people often say, you know, we need to be more diverse. And so in our workplace or our neighborhood organizations, we wanna, we wanna create that one seat at the table. And usually it's one seat at the table um, for a person of color. So we can have some diversity and it makes us feel better to have some diversity. Um, and what we really push here among our uh, neighbors who gather um, is that we, we wanna be led by people of color who are, who are the experts in this, who um, know how it feels, who know how, um, what works, what movements have worked, uh, what political action has worked. Um, and we don't wanna be uh, too often we as white people sort of take up all the air in the room. Um, and especially when we're talking about race uh, in a multiracial setting, 
it becomes almost remedial work for us to figure out um, how we're feeling and the burden gets put on people of color. So we very deliberately have kept our leadership group small. Um, we were founded by two African-American women and two white women. And a lot of people have wanted to sort of join us in helping to create these workshops. Like lots of people show up at our meals, but there's been a lot of interest in wanting to sort of help us lead. Um, and we have kept it very, very slow to keep, I mean, to quite frankly, to keep Jasmine um, centered as the leader here um, and to allow Andrea Rogers and I to support her. Um, so having that, um, having the table refigured so that it looks like America is a goal for us. Um, and the work that we as white people need to do to sort of be brought up to speed, to sort of grapple with our own, um, with our own issues of trauma often is gonna need to take place in all white spaces. So that's one thing that we have um, uh, deliberately worked on and dig in. And another is that our practices are anti-racist. Um, it's a very, you know, Ibram X. Kendi has given us an excellent framework. Uh, he's given us a workbook. He's given us all these tools to understand um, that, you know, race is invented deliberately to divide us. Uh, and it's working really, really well at that. And so as we look at our own actions within our communities, among neighbors and our families and our congregations, are we acting and speaking in ways that are anti-racist? And if they aren't anti-racist, meaning that they are dismantling systemic racism, then they are racist. And we need to be rooting that out in our, in our hearts, in our actions, in our words, and in the ways in which we um, gather around tables with uh, other people. And then uh, the third sort of critical thing we've learned is to tell the truth and to show up and to dig in. And what do we mean by that? We mean, I mean, we all know truth and, truth and reconciliation, the first word is truth. Like we can't have the reconciliation until we start with the truth. Um, we have found that um, we've done that in various ways. You can do it through uh, arts and culture. We do that through um, conversations like you participated in earlier. Um, but the goal really is to like, just to dig in, like um, race in America is so big. The headlines are so overwhelming. How do you ground the work, the action in your hyper-local neighborhood, in your workplace, in your own heart? And let Andrea Rogers take over on the last three points. Whoops, doesn't work if I don't unmute. All right. Um, so in addition to those things, we learned and practiced building power and how to use our power and our privilege. And we all have privilege of one form or another. Um, and we feel an obligation and we have a huge opportunity to use our privilege to speak up and work toward the change that needs to happen. You can use your privilege on a personal level when you find yourself in a group with little or no diversity, which obviously happens very often in a lot of workplaces in corporate settings, academia, faith groups, and, you know, 
where things start for all of us are family gatherings. So you can use your privilege of being in the group and your voice to question problematic practices you see, or simply start by questioning the lack of anyone non-white in the room and in the power structure. And a great way to build power is to join in coalition with others who share your goals. There's strength in numbers, right? So this can take the form of holding meetings with elected officials, um, like Diggin has joined with uh, Faith in St. Joe County to do, um, activities that raise public awareness, and applying pressure to those in power to make some systemic changes. Um, now, reparational actions, these, these are often on a larger scale at a, at a systemic level. In addition to the idea of the federal government paying reparations to descendants of enslaved persons, there are things that we can already do in our daily lives in, in other areas. On an organizational level, some prominent universities and churches that owned, sold, and profited from enslaved persons have finally begun to make some reparational actions. And some ways that we might take these actions as individuals is by pushing for reparations in the corporate academic and faith organizations that we belong to. So to start, even just start by doing some digging into the historical practices. And then restorative practices are something that we, we talked about, learned about, and did within Dig In. Um, and these are often on a more personal level, but there is really some overlap with reparational action as well. So some examples of restorative practices are what you all just did, which is active listening. We just shut our mouths and hear what people have to say. Um, restorative justice circles are powerful. Simply speaking up, silence is consent, right? Pushing for workplace system changes, um, building relationships, and something as basic as making space for others. Simply being aware that there's unseen trauma experienced by a lot of people around us and doing what we can to see to it that everyone has a seat at the table. Um, and as a white person, me just as an individual talking to an almost all white group, um, I would just like to remind us that it's, it's on us, us white people to do this work. It's our obligation and it's our duty um, to, to step up and do it. And we don't, we aren't automatically allies just because we read a lot, because I want to be, um, because I feel bad about stuff that's happened. We're truly allies when we band together and we take real action using our voice and our actions in public. Sorry about that. All right, everybody. So we are getting near to the end of our session today. And so I want to read one quote uh, to you that we have found and dig in. We use in the third reconstruction from Reverend Barber. Uh, the world we live in, based in its corporate economic interests, thrives on the marginalized and oppressed, vying for relevance, fighting over crumbs and elbowing one another for a seat at the table. Burnout frustration and bitterness are real. The mistrust is exhausting and the scapegoating is futile. We lose sight of the real enemy and the source of injustice. We forget that no one is free until we all are free. 
All right. And so we would like to also um, ask, are there any questions that anybody may have uh, before we end our session today? Are there any questions? Uh, I would ask a question related to the role of poverty in all of this and, and how that intersects. Uh, uh, because say at St. James, uh, the people, the, the black people we have attending are, are people of means. They are, they are not the poor. Uh, and uh, another piece in terms of um, um, pairing up with the congregation Many of the black congregations have clergy who have jobs outside that are that are not significantly paid. So it's not a, a job to be the leader of a congregation. It's uh, they still, you know, work in factories and do other kinds of things. So they don't. They're not free when other people are making decisions, and so that really affects the uh, the, the interrelationship of the two. Uh, both congregationally and uh, and just within a congregation, how we in fact come to uh, uh, work these issues uh, also with poverty in mind. Absolutely. And I can give you just a small touch, but as a congregation, that's something the congregation will have to work through and work out, kind of flesh out as a group to say, again, where does that next step take us to? Where do we go from here, right? Um, but you're absolutely right. There is a direct correlation between racism um, and economic oppression um, or uh, neighborhood oppression or um, a depressed area, right? There's a direct correlation that goes between the two where you keep a, a certain group of individuals uh, vying in a community for a small piece of the pie when the remainder of the community uh, has a larger piece of it, right? Um, and so there are people that of means that will come to the congregation, but the real work is with the people that have been oppressed in a way that can't seem to get out of that oppression. So then that's where you go into the community and you begin to talk and have the conversations with those individuals. Uh, what would make, what makes the difference for them? How can we hope and help your community, right? Hope you out of the existence that you're in, but also lend a hand to take you to the next level. What is it we can do? How can we use our positions of power and privilege in order to make those changes uh, for uh, for you, right? So again, that's the, the overall dialogue there. Any other questions? And it's something we, we definitely flesh out during Dig In too. We bring in those, all those different items that racism brings dissension with or separates, whether it's economic, whether it's educational, whether it's health, whether it's, uh, you know, we did a, a session on list the hopes and helps for your community, right? And a lot of them went into medical, health-related issues, educational issues, um, again, the economic, uh, the systems that allow for certain TIF dollars to be spent in one area as opposed to another, and how the legislation plays a role in that oppression or continues uh, that oppression, right? So those types of things we flush out and dig in as well. Jasmine. Yes. Do, does the board of Dig In uh, in it help other neighborhoods start something like Dig In in our own in our own realm? Gotcha. One clarification: We're not a board. We are just neighbors. We are just like you, right? 
You know what I'm saying? And we never want to put ourselves into there's a hierarchy. We never want to put ourselves into a space where there's a leadership necessarily. We are just leader. We are just members of a neighborhood coming together to start the conversation. But yes, we are open to having discussions with groups to say, okay, how can you replicate? How can you do this in, in small versions or in large versions? We're always up to that conversation with groups as well. Always. And the one plus of the pandemic was that our potluck suppers had to go online. And so our neighborhood got very, got much larger as people were zooming into to our uh, dig-in suppers. At some point, I think we even had someone from Portland, Oregon, Oregon join us. <laughs> we had to have one tiny silver lining during <laughs> COVID, right? <laughs> and that, that was one of them. Now, I know it's after 10 and we have to let you all go. Are there any last thoughts, Andrea or Jasmine or anybody else? I'm just so grateful that you all invited us to be, to be part of this group and this process you're going through. Yes. And Stephen, if you will put up slide 11 for us, this is our last slide to give you. And the reason we're giving you this last slide is to say thank you. And if there are any further questions, it would be our information on the screen. Um, for Dig In South Bend, and you can also find us on Facebook. So you see our email here, diginsouthbend at gmail.com. And then also we have a Facebook page that we keep updated with events that we are participating in. Our next series will be on that page. So keep up with it, like it, um, so you can keep up with what's going on in Dig In. But feel free to email us. Um, if you would like to be added to the Dig In email list, please email us and we will make sure that you are added. We don't want to assume just because you attended this meeting this morning that this is something that you want to pursue in this way. We want you to be um, uh, um you know, want you to be at the table, right? So um, please email us and let us know if you would like to join in the conversations with Dig In. And thank you all for having us today. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here and uh, for this presentation on uh, moving from division to dialogue on the issue of race um, in our communities and our families. And um, we hope to continue this conversation in the future. Um, so thank you for all your work. Uh, next week, um, Dr. Mahan Mirza, from uh, who's the executive director of the Ansari Institute at Notre Dame, um, is going to talk to us about uh, division and dialogue uh, between religions. Um, so um, please join us next week for that conversation. And um, thank you for being here today. Thank you. All right.